It might help if you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 8. Some of the passages will be up on the screen, but what you'll find this morning is that our passage in Hebrews 8 is a continuation of an argument or a case that's being made that began in Hebrews chapter 4. And the assertion is that the new covenant, the covenant instituted by Christ, is a better covenant than the previous one, the one that was enacted and given to Moses for the people of Israel. And the primary reason for why this new covenant is superior to the previous one has to do with the fact that Jesus is a better high priest than the high priest that came before him. The author of Hebrews labors to make this case in a context, you may recall, where you had many Jewish people pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ. But this is in the first century where pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ put you in harm's way and made you vulnerable to persecution, even death. And so as you might imagine, there are some Jewish Christians who were contemplating a return to Judaism. They were thinking it was a lot easier to be a Jew in this first century context. Even with the Romans bothering us, it was a lot easier than being a Jewish Christian. And so this entire book, the book of Hebrews, is the author's attempt at saying, don't go back from whence you came. We have a better agreement with God here. We have a better mediator, a better high priest. You look at the first two verses of chapter 8. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, and not man. Now that may just seem like a lot of religious language to set up chapter 8. But let me give an illustration and let me see if this illustration can unpack at least a little bit of what is being said in the first couple verses. I've been in a few of your homes and hopefully I'll get in more of your homes the longer I'm here. But I know that some of you have in your home the very same thing that I have in my home. And that is... A favorite chair to sit on. Now it seems like a silly thing, but many of you have it. Just like I've got it. You've got that particular sofa or that reclining chair or that favorite chair that you go to. To unwind and to rest at the end of a difficult day. For some of you, that favorite chair is like a second bed based on the number of times you've fallen asleep in that chair. We know what it's like to have a favorite chair. In my home, it's the right side of the sofa that's in the living room. I get two pillows on my right side, and I've got my feet up on the footrest, and I'm very, very comfortable there. But my family will tell you that I do not sit on the sofa until at least 7 or 7.30 or sometimes 8 o'clock in the evening. You see, I cannot sit down on this sofa when there is so much work yet to be done. 
when there is a sermon to write, when there are emails to send, when there are meetings to attend to, I do not have the opportunity or the occasion to sit in my favorite seat. That spot on the sofa is reserved for the end of my day, when my work is done. And when my family sees me sitting on the right-hand side of that sofa in the living room, they know that I've checked out in terms of my work for the day. That you're, the church isn't going to get any more out of me once I'm on that sofa. Well, I share that with you because there is a similar message being conveyed to us in the book of Hebrews. With the reference that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. If you were to scroll back to the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, verse 3, you would see this. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is significant. It is no small thing to read that Jesus, the Son of God, sat down. Compare this with the work of the high priests. The work of the high priests, they were constantly offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. You know how it goes. The high priest would follow the meticulous prescription for which animals to sacrifice and how to sacrifice those animals. And they would sacrifice those animals for the sins of the people. But then what would happen? The people would repeat their sin. And as the people repeated their sin, the high priests were compelled to repeat the sacrifices over and over and over again. So the priestly work of dealing with the sins of the people was never ending. The work was never complete. Until Jesus came upon the scene. Once Jesus finished making purification for sins on the cross, once Jesus completed the work that he set out to do, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, signaling that our sins have once and for all been atoned for. There's no need to repeat the sacrifice of Christ. It is once and for all. And so he sat down. Not only is it significant that Jesus sat down, but it is significant to read where he sat down. You will remember that in the earlier covenant, the high priest interacted with God who is symbolically present within the earthly tabernacle. But Jesus is said to be a better high priest because he sits at the right hand of the Father within the heavenly tabernacle. You read verse 4, you'll see that an important distinction is made between Jesus and all the other high priests. Jesus' priestly function continues in heaven. While all the other high priests do their work on earth. One biblical commentator puts it this way. 
Jesus' singular death on earth is the basis for his ministry in heaven. Now, if you're tracking closely with me this morning, and I hope you have, you should have a particular question on the tip of your lips. If Jesus has an ongoing ministry in heaven, what is Jesus aiming to do now? If the work on earth is finished, if it's done, but the work in heaven is ongoing, what's he trying to do now? Because by every appearance, Jesus has at least two different stages to his ministry. He has the earthly ministry that comes to its close on the cross, where Jesus utters in a loud cry, It is finished. But then there's also this heavenly ministry, where we are being told that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. So the relevant question for you and for me this morning is what is Jesus currently aiming to do in heaven? What is the ministry of Jesus now as it pertains to us? The author of Hebrews hints at an answer in verse 6. He says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So you can follow the logic. The ministry of Jesus is better because the covenant that he enacts is better. And the covenant is based on promises that are better. You're following the logic and you're thinking, okay, I get it. The ministry of Jesus is better because the covenant of Jesus is better because the promises of that covenant are better. But what are the promises? What's Jesus promising to do? What promises will Jesus fulfill as our high priest in heaven? Well, the author of Hebrews answers that question by giving a direct quotation from Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 to 34. 600 years earlier, the Lord indicated through Jeremiah that a new covenant would be established, which would be superior to the existing one, and he describes the covenant in this way. And I'll just give you a snippet. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So the answer to the question is simply this. Jesus is fulfilling the promise to make his people obedient to God. Jesus is fulfilling the promise to make us more like him. You see, in the earlier covenant, God's people were given what? They were given the law. God's people were given a whole long list of commands that they were to adhere to. But guess what? The people struggled to obey. They struggled immensely to obey the commands because the commands did not impart any ability to obey. The commands did not impart any desire to obey. 
It wasn't enough that they had the correct information transmitted through Moses. They also needed a certain inclination. They they not only needed to know right from wrong, but they needed to have a desire to do what was right. So what we're being told here in Hebrews 8 is that the promises and the prophecies of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 are being brought into play in the new covenant. We're being told that Jesus the high priest not only sets before us the things which we must do, but he also provides an inclination to obey. He also provides power to persevere in obedience. In the first covenant, we didn't get this. We had commands with no desire to obey. So it's not just forgiveness that we get from Jesus. You ask someone on the street, what do you get from Jesus? Forgiveness for my sins. Yes. But it's not just forgiveness. It's not just pardon. But you also get power over sin. I really like the way 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon frames it. And that's why I printed it in the bulletin. So it won't go up on the screen, but you'll see it in the bulletin. Justification without sanctification would be no salvation at all. It would call the leper clean and leave him to die of his disease. It would forgive the rebellion and allow the rebel to remain an enemy to his king. Remember that the Lord Jesus came to take away sin in three ways. He came to remove the penalty of sin, the power of sin, And last of all, the presence of sin. What I want you to see is that God's holy standards have not changed from the first covenant to the second covenant. It's not as if God looked down upon us and went, Oh, these guys are hopeless. They just can't seem to get what I need them to do. They're they're hopeless to obey my commands. So I'm going to lower the standard. I'm going to mark on the curve, if you will, because none of these guys are passing the test. No, God has not changed how He wants us to live. What has changed is that in the new covenant, God's redeemed are given new desires. They're given a desire and a capacity to obey, something we didn't get in the earlier covenant. In the earlier covenant, it was obedience by willpower. But in the new covenant, it's obedience by the Spirit's power. Now, I don't mean to get unduly personal here, but probably most people at some point in their life uh, go on some kind of eating regime. Uh, We might call it a diet. I have been on many diets. And your diet depends on a number of things. But I think many of you would say at the end of the day, your diet depends upon willpower. Well... If my success in diets is indicative of my success in other things, we know the limitations of willpower. You know, you've caught me eating those Doritos and that hamburger. You know that my willpower is lacking. And that's true of most of us. If our obedience to God comes down to willpower, we're in big trouble. 
But it doesn't come down to willpower. The new covenant helps us to be obedient because the power of the Holy Spirit is available to every Christian. So here's the challenge. Many of us fall into trying to obey by the old methods. Many of us are trying to be good Christians by willpower. Where we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying our hardest to be the best Christian possible. But it's by willpower. And most of you know that you don't grow in Christ-likeness by your willpower. You don't become more like Christ because you're determined to. My family will tell you that I am among the most determined individuals on earth. But I have found that my obedience by determination ultimately ends in failure. The truth is I need a power beyond myself. I need a power beyond myself if I have any hope to represent Jesus effectively in this world. Thankfully, and we've heard this before, what is required is supplied. What is required in the commands of God is supplied by the Spirit of God. So the choice we have to make is this. Are we going to go it alone? Are we just going to try to do our best to be good Christians? Or are we going to go to the throne of grace? Are we going to go to God in prayer and ask Him to help us? I want to illustrate this. And I know I've used this illustration before, but I I can think of none better. So I repeat it. A few of you have met Ali's brother, Matt, uh, my brother-in-law. And if you've met Ali's brother, you know the enormous individual that he is. At least enormous to someone of my stature. Ali's brother, Matt, is six foot three and upwards of 260 pounds. He was a junior A hockey player. He, was, he is one of the strongest individuals I have ever met in my life. So when Allie and I lived in Toronto, there were occasions where we would be moving furniture around. And because Matt didn't live all that far away, we would take advantage of those times when Matt was with us. And we would have him help me move furniture. And and I can tell you, it was almost an amusing exercise to move large pieces of furniture with my brother-in-law. Because it didn't matter whether we were going upstairs or downstairs. It was like I was barely doing anything. We'd be moving a giant sofa, and I'd be holding one end, and it would feel like a feather. Because he was doing all the work. He was doing all the lifting. You know, I would be foolish to have Matt sitting in a living room while I moved furniture on my own. You think, what are you doing? You're a little shrimp, you know, you're out of shape and you're trying to move this on your own, Bryn. Why don't you get this big guy sitting down next to you? That will help you. You see, Ali's brother Matt made heavy things seem light. Matt's strength made moving furniture, made heavy things seem light. And without his help, there would have been certain pieces that would have been impossible for me to move. Friends, I share that illustration with you because some of you look at the commands of Scripture and you say, these are too big for me. I cannot possibly 
do all that's required. I cannot, these burdens are too big for me to lift. And I want to say to all of you this morning, the Holy Spirit of God can make heavy things seem light. You look at certain commands and you say, I can't do this. I look at commands in Scripture all the time and I say, Lord, I can't do this. But instead of just giving up, I do what any sane person would do. I ask for help. Lord, I can't do this. I can't do what your word requires, so help me. And he does. The Holy Spirit's job is to make heavy things seem light. And so as you hear this call to be like Jesus, you think, oh, I could never be like Jesus. Well, not by willpower. We have on our wall pursuing Christ's likeness. That's not possible by willpower, but it's possible by the Spirit's power. What is required is supplied. Jesus has designs to make you more like Him. And I want you to hear the good news that if Jesus has redeemed you, He has also changed your affections. He's changed your desires. You feel this, don't you? There is a time where you did not care about the things of Christ. A time when you did not care about being a good Christian. But if you've been redeemed, you want to be like Christ. You look at that and you say, I want His likeness. I want to reflect His character. I want to be like Jesus. And I'm here to say it can happen. Because Jesus wants that for you. And He's here to help. Having made purification for your sins, having sat down at the right hand of the Father, Jesus now has an ongoing ministry in heaven as your high priest. So I want you to go to your priest in prayer. Not me. Not the Anglican priest or the Roman Catholic priest. Go to the high priest in heaven in prayer. What am I going to ask Him? Ask Him to make your heavy burdens seem lighter. Ask Him to do for you that which would be impossible to do on your own. Ask Jesus to make you more like Him. And if you ask for such things, you have every assurance to believe. Jesus will answer your prayer. If you want to be like Jesus, and if you make that your plea before the throne of grace, He will answer. And you will see as time goes on, year after year, decade after decade, you will look a little more like Jesus than you previously did. His design, His aim, His promise is to make you more like Him. Go to your high priest in heaven. He waits for you. Amen.